In this episode of The Trajectory Africa, Track 10, my guest artist is Denai Muzandu. Denai is a senior investor relations associate at HPE Growth, where she leads and supports the public and investor relations function with a focus on fundraising and strategic communication. Prior to HPE, Denai was an investment and investor relations associate at Goodwill Investments, an early stage technology private equity firm focused on emerging markets and impact investing. Denai is an advisory board member of Private Equity International and the Africa Trust Group. She holds a BCom in politics, philosophy, and economics and a postgraduate honors degree in economics from the University of Cape Town. As we round the bend on this Trajectory Africa series, we turn our attention to the world of limited partners or LPs. In the last two episodes, we focus on how general partners or GPs structure and manage their funds to invest and generate competitive returns. In this episode, Denai and I discuss the intricacies of investor relations and how funds go about raising money to invest. We chat about how she got into PE, what motivated her to trade Table Mountain for the Rikes Museum, the fundraising process and how it differs by LP type, what LPs look for when they evaluate funds, what to do and what not to do when raising money, and why deep listening and cultural multilinguality are superpowers for investor relations professionals. I hope you enjoy the show. Denai, welcome to The Trajectory Africa. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I think you and I met for the first time during African Tech Roundup's Village Diaries show in Amsterdam. I think that was maybe three years ago. You were one of the panelists for a discussion about the experiences of African techies in the diaspora. And it was a <laughs> it was a really fun trip for me anyway, and a very lively show. And I have no doubt that this conversation will be just as lively. So let's jump in. So you've spent nearly six years working in investing and investor relations with Goodwell, an investment firm for focused on financial inclusion, fintech, and inclusive growth. But you recently joined HPE Growth, which is a private equity fund, also in an investor relations role. So congratulations on the new gig. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. So now that we're more or less caught up on where you are now, let's walk the story back to hear how you arrived where you are. So Denai, can you please share with us a bit about your background as well as how and why you became an Africa-focused investor? Ah, well, it's interesting because I'm, I clearly most probably am on a transition in that story as well. So yeah, I go back all the way to being in South Africa. So I'm originally from Zimbabwe and then ended up in South Africa, given the economic crisis that had happened, economic and social crisis. And my family moved. We were a fortunate bunch to be able to have opportunities, obviously, outside. I was quite, well, what can I say? I became quite aware of my politics, I think, in university. That was most probably one of the most important moments in my life during Roads Must Fall, uh, which was a student movement that happened in uh, Cape Town, but then became a national student movement in South Africa. And I think that that moment in time was quite crucial in the choices I was going to make career-wise, actually. But no, I didn't actually end up being a socialist and ending up in NGOs. <laughs> NGOs capitalism. <laughs> oh, I'm sure everyone's just like, yeah, whatever, that did not do anything to you. No, but actually what happened is that I was really intrigued by this notion of pan-Africanism. What does it mean to excel? Black excellence, what was that? And how could I really look at plugging into um, an environment and, and unlocking potential within Africa? I was kind of also really tired of the narrative of Africa needs saving from the Western world. And yeah, it was all a culmination of multiple things. But well, life works the way it works. Uh, serendipity is always generous. And that's how I found my first footing at Goodwill, where I was the first employee in the South African office. So uh, it was me and the founder in the beginning. And to be honest, when I did start, I wasn't necessarily sure what I had like signed up for. Really. <laughs> I knew that everywhere else that I had interviewed, I didn't feel comfortable. Hmm. I didn't feel I would fit in or it just didn't. My stomach just didn't work. And now you right. say my stomach doesn't work. It doesn't mean I had irritated bowel syndrome or something. I just mean the gut was not was not aligned. So anyhow, I then joined Goodwell, first employee, and that was a really great and fun journey, discovery of myself and also the influence that I could have in the space. 
And I think from that and working with the various entrepreneurs, those from MFS Africa, from Nomanini, you name it, inclusivity, Zande, the whole world, were all part of a journey of discovery for myself and being part of the investments and, and sourcing those deals and managing them and kind of understanding their struggles as entrepreneurs and seeing what they were doing really to make a difference. Well, I would say to make a difference in the sense of providing access to people who didn't have, you know, access in a different way and in, in an innovative way. So that was a, it was a very exciting part of my own journey and also being able to distill my politics in a capitalist world, right? And my African politics in a capitalist world. Maybe some people who know me uh, would always see that I had my Afro and that was actually more of a, a statement to have an Afro in private equity and a big one was was unconventional yes. but it was it was a part of a bit of my own politics in a way in the private equity space and alas the years have passed and uh, my journey has changed uh, and I have changed as well and part of that was taking a, a leap that is an uncomfortable but necessary leap which was to delve into something I didn't know and that also came through with investor relations so you can be a good deal maker, but it's one thing to be able to say no to everyone. It's another to have no being said to you. And that's a very humbling experience. And I think, and this is my personal opinion, a fantastic investment professional is one who understands how to deploy capital, but is also able to raise it. And so that was a muscle I wanted to learn for myself. And of course, I, I then ended up in the in the Netherlands, but it wasn't necessarily about investor relations at that time. It was, I think I was in a point in time where I was not necessarily sure what more I needed to do, but I knew I needed to do more. And I knew that if I had remained in Cape Town looking at Table Mountain, I would have not grown <laughs> to be more because, I mean, yeah, Cape Town is lovely, right? You can spend all of your time there, but you can isolate yourself and never grow and so I decided to take the quite uncomfortable move which was to come to a whole new environment I thought I would study and that didn't end up happening that's also another long story but I think all part of a, a beautiful puzzle finding its way together and so I did start in the investor relations position and that was deep learning really just a different realm a different new sort of empathy that I needed to build that I didn't know right because one end you were in Africa you were deploying capital and you were creating this story for African entrepreneurs the next you were sitting right next to people who make decisions where money mm. should be allocated, and they come from a different perspective they mostly not African actually they're not they typically Europeans or Westerners with different let's say different desires or different justifications for why they do what they're doing and that can be complex and different but it's also something you can learn so of course I started off Table Mountain wondering where I was going to it was a long year of where am I going to the gut right. the gut kept telling me so at first it was it's not Cape Town okay yeah and that's when it was okay it's it's a really an entirely different move right. and that's how I ended up at HPE which is very much on the growth spectrum. So no longer early stage, talking about bigger companies and you're talking about a different geography, really just different in many aspects. But what's exciting for me is that I truly believe that the technology space in the Western world is about to collide with that in Africa. Hmm. It was a bit of a positioning for me, which is uh, I want to be able to be the person who can always try and translate hmm. on both ends. Interesting. And translation means that you, you have to learn on both ends and be an advocate on both ends, right, to allow for the bridging to happen. And so maybe, and, and for now, that's what my thinking is, but the story will unravel itself. And maybe you'll ask me in a couple of years if that's still the case and it might be different, but I hope it will be the case as well, that I will still be able to have a, a relevant role in making sure that the tech story in Africa also has space in Europe or in America. And that's also what's interesting about the growth stage. It's really about, it's. I mean, there's no growth capital yet in, in Africa right. in the sense that we understand it. So to also be 
in that realm and space to see that is is quite interesting from my perspective. No, certainly. And I, I hope I have the privilege of chatting with you in a few years and, and checking to see if the story unfolded how you expected it to, or or maybe more appropriately how it was meant to. I think we we expect yeah. the former and hope for the latter or, yeah. the, or the reverse. But in any case, so many points of resonance here. So I love what you said about distilling African politics in a capitalist world. But I also really, really appreciate this idea of navigating through intuition or gut feel. This has actually come up in a couple of different conversations and even in the research that I co-published on early stage investing. So the idea of finding one's way into the truth before the truth has revealed itself, kind of like the top level of conversations in this space tend to be numbers oriented for obvious reasons. But there's a, you know... An area of uncertainty, I think, that exists before whatever hypothesis that you're attempting to prove provides some evidence is found. So the idea of leaning into that with something other than an Excel spreadsheet, uh, I think, is really compelling. The other thing that I think is incredibly interesting is this collision between tech in Africa and tech outside of Africa, in Europe, the U.S., elsewhere, and the idea of being a translator. That's actually one of the key premises of this podcast, because I'm a member of the diaspora, right? I'm not going to sit and claim all sorts of experiences and contexts that I don't have. But there's a way in which where I sit sometimes, if I do it properly, uh, can provide <laughs> can provide something of a, a bridge or an experience in translation, which I think is useful. So I want to get into into those things, but I want to take a half step back and maybe ask you in in view of all of the things that you shared, how do you now think of or characterize Africa focused opportunities in in tech and VC? If you were to give like a you know an elevator pitch for what that is, how do you view the opportunity? How would you describe it? Yeah, it's a good one because it's interesting from all the exits excitements that's been happening this year. I feel as if I was part of the breaking ground story of it, you know, because this is what we would speak about, right? That we would see the potential coming and that the exits will begin, that will begin the showcase of the evidence that it's possible. And I think what I would say is the game is still right at the beginning. So I think right now it's more about the evidence it's it's evidence it's 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 the case points and that is becoming more clear and i think of course when we talk about technology we, we typically in africa are only focusing on on fintech but there's more to tech than just uh, fintech there are multiple use cases so i think we can really talk about a true success story when we see a multitude of use cases outside of fintech with technology within africa and so that's why i still say it's it's still early but we did need fintech to be the forefront runner, right? Because it was maybe the easier investment case to make within an African context. And so I would say in comparison to what I see now in a different geography and in a different environment, we still have a while to go, which is obvious, right? There are normal constraints. I mean, there's not that much available capital the same way that you have capital available in developed markets, right? There's right. just far much more money that's available, more competition. But I think that they're slowly beginning a movement towards Africa because a lot of other markets are too hot. And so capital needs to find new places to go to. But of course, the problem is, is that we still keep talking about Africa as if it's still one. We sometimes do the disservice. So we're aware that we shouldn't mention it as if it's one, but actually, in essence, we still talk about it as if it's one. And so we we amalgamate the risk profile of Africa in addition, mm. and it's already perceived as too exotic as a location. And so there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in that way of creating it as a destination, really with differences. Mm -hmm. with serious differences where you could really make investment cases in different geographies or different places. 
yeah, while having access to a bigger, let's say, market size as well, right? So you can say you can make a case for doing investments in South Africa, but you can say that business can then also have access to to a larger market, right? Maybe because there are some similarities, and that's that's what makes it a bit interesting and exciting. But I would still say we're at the beginning of the journey of the evidence point. So we broke ground a couple of years ago. We were breaking ground, fresh ground. I think we've planted seeds Mm -hmm. and I think we're now developing roots, but we haven't necessarily seen anything flower yet. So that's if there was a, a way of me using some some flowery imagery i would start with break ground seeding roots but we still haven't seen you know we still haven't seen yet this plant break through the soil i would say right i actually appreciate metaphors that relate to growth and flowering as opposed to war i was having a conversation <laughs> in the context of an angel network and we were talking about you know dry powder and shooting power and all of that i said i i need i need a i did i need a different metaphor <laughs> it's it's doing too much right now with the images of violence but in any case i appreciate the metaphor you chose so if the idea is that there are roots but there is more room to grow and more evidence to be uncovered and fintech arguably is one of the easier cases to prove. What more evidence do you think we need to see? And what are the more challenging cases that still need to Yeah, so most people will say exits, but those are beginning. But actually, the reality is going to be capital, more influx of capital, and actually diversity in capital. The more diverse the capital base becomes, and the more established the value chain, well, or we can say the stage of, of growth for the businesses in terms of capital allocation is there, then I think the better we are. There still is a gap within early stage investing. And there still is a gap within what you would call, let me say, low mid cap kind of uh, raising. And you still have a bit of excess within larger ticket sizes, more significant ticket sizes. So if you could really, really talk about a well-developed value chain for the entrepreneurs with a diverse portfolio of investors and that they could speak at, and then I think we, we really will begin to get to a space where we can talk about evidence, right? Because what most people look at right now, and even in fundraising, is, is the evidence of the exits. It's the track record, right? And and it's like a chicken and egg scenario, right? You right. need the to ensure that you create the value or to create the, the exits or whatever that is. But the capital won't move if it doesn't see evidence as well. And so it's like this weirdish place. So besides exits coming as showcases for it, I think it's going to be about more diverse allocation of capital in Africa. And for those use cases to also grow outside of just Africa, right? To become global players, because that's how you also then attract more diverse capital. But then I want to also add another bit, which is that we also tend to forget that they are the really small SMEs, like the Mm -hmm. small, like the auntie who has a milling company who just wants to mill her maize and basically she employs a couple of people and maybe she just needs a small amount of capital. Uh, But with that, she still makes quite good money. She's quite cash positive. I think sometimes we over-sensationalize the tech story in Mm -hmm. Africa and put a lot of emphasis on that while forgetting that there is a whole, whole foundation, a bedrock, of smaller businesses that really are are also moving people's livelihoods in a different way. And I think that we need to have a two-pronged approach in that. It's good for us to have big businesses that will do amazing things. But also the reality is, is that we can talk about 
fintech and we can talk about advancements in financial inclusion, but cash is still king in Africa. It doesn't matter what we say. I mean, unless you're in Zimbabwe, because that is hellishly different. Cash is not king. You are definitely using your eco cash for everything. So that's different. But point being is on the most part, cash is still king and the physical attributes are still going to be there for as long as we still have uh, long distances of dirt road that we cover between places for as long as we can talk about the last mile for as long as we have agents that cash in and cash out money they are still some very fundamental physical aspects about the continent that we just can't run away from and, and part of that is also to channel capital that also unlocks that potential as well and so, for instance, African Trust, we am an advisory on their fund. They also specifically look at those projects and particularly looking at women. And there's a really interesting case in Zambia with a company that they invested in with this lady who had basically drying fruit, drying fruit facility. And she needed a very small, I would say, insignificant capital raise of maybe 10 10 to $20,000. Mm-hmm. It's nothing. For her just to have a little factory that would be able for her to, to service many retail stores. And uh, was it recently that they got a request from a store in Germany to see if they could do production uh, and send also to them. Wow. But what was interesting there is that this lady was also employing many people. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a sexy business in the sense of, uh, you know, big capital raises she got access to capital in a particularly bespoke way in which the capital was structured so it would make sense for her business case and and she's content with that you know she doesn't need to be a billion dollar company and that's also okay so we need a good diversity of those kind of businesses because if we want to talk about the complexity of Africa then we really need to talk about the complexity of Africa in that way. I'm so glad you brought it up. There was a little seed in the back of my mind that was saying, maybe you should ask her about that. But you you brought it before anyway, so I'm glad you did. That's actually a keen area of interest for me. I'm Part of what I'm interested in is the contours of the entire venture landscape and how those pieces work together or don't complement each other or don't solve similar problems or don't. But I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a lot of underappreciated opportunities in the very space that you describe. And it's important given all of the research. I mean, there is nuance to the degree to which SMEs are the engines of economic growth and development. But I think there's a good amount of evidence that that suggests that's the case. And so if prosperity is one of the goals, then it definitely makes sense to ensure that these sorts of business get the right type of capital for what they're trying to do. So another bit that you'd mentioned that really resonated is this idea of leaning into empathy and Mm. building new muscles. So you Mm. mentioned the difference between being in a position to say no versus being in a position to be told no. Mm. And interestingly, I, I never would have thought about it this way, but Going from being an investor to an investor relations is actually that transition. You're going mm. from being in the position to say, no, thank you, to being told, no, thank you. So now, given that you're shifting in that perspective, you're shifting geographies and you're mm. shifting roles, although the role shift started before, what made you <laughs> choose the arguably, maybe not even arguably, harder path? So what, what motivated you? I mean, you started to talk about it already, to shift into investor relation? Yeah, I I mean, it's a good question. What made me? I mean, I don't know if it's what made me, but uh, more what what was the occurrence of things and why I've also maybe stuck with it a bit more. Yes. Because I mean, I I could have chosen to be at a new organization and back at doing investments. Exactly. Experience I have, it's not going anywhere. But actually, Being closer to decision makers is very fascinating because they actually make the world go round in a way that we might not really understand. Sitting or talking to big institutions that deploy massive amounts of pension money, I'm talking about billions under management, people who will determine basically what geographies will be allocated capital 
or who who have opinions, right? We we think about them as institutions, as these big things. Yes, they have bureaucracy, and by the way, there are different types of investors. So right now, I'm really referring to bigger institutions. Yeah, they can be bureaucratic. And they can have compliance and legal and all sorts of red tape, but they still have people who have opinions, opinions and thoughts uh, and perspectives. And I think for me, what was interesting is to be closer to decision makers, but also to be able to have influence to also show something else. I I think the investor relations function is becoming more and more of a function. It hasn't really been a function in previous years, really. You haven't really seen it as a role that exists. And now more and more, it's becoming a function. And why I wanted to really get that muscle going is because it is a harder muscle. It's a harder muscle in the sense that you have to learn to be uncomfortable most times. You also have to learn to play with power dynamics. Mm -hmm. You also always have to learn to build empathy for the same businesses you choose to serve, right? For entrepreneurs, when you speak to them, they talk about fundraising with the most grief because it's hard and, and you actually can grow that empathy. In a way, investment professionals, so investment officers, a bit like cowboys sometimes. You know, I kind of miss it. You know, the 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 long nights, getting an IM out, and like the deal needs to happen, and right. you know, he doesn't have runway, and you know, you feel like you're this big shot making it happen. And and not to say, I mean, of course, the people are humble and all of that, and you can have all of that, but there is a bit of a sense of you allocate capital, right. You determine, you have someone who comes to you and says, this is my business, please, please, please. And this is all my underwear underneath my skirt because you need to know everything. Yeah. And that's the same that happens to you. So so when you're on the investor relations side. And so it teaches you a different sort of empathy towards entrepreneurs or the people you're trying to serve. And at the same time, it also teaches you a different skill in terms of it's not necessarily but negotiating, but about people. Because you, you speak with people at various levels, different moods, different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So it teaches you to communicate in, in a multitude of ways because you're forced to communicate in a multitude of ways because the power dynamic has shifted. Whereas in when you're on the other side of the bridge, you typically hold more of the power in the dynamic. Right. But I think that will begin to change when uh, entrepreneurs become more organized and start calling out uh, bad VCs or bad managers. Right. But it will still be a while away, right? It will still be a while away. There's still a power dynamic within that. And so I did want to exercise that muscle. The second one is the cultural difference muscle, right? Mm-hmm. Now dealing with more European LPs, more US-based LPs. Wow, what a difference, right? What an entire difference. Can imagine. Right? It is. And and that as well is learning a new language. And so I'm always curious to learn a new language because I think what makes the continent different is our our view, our outward view towards the world, which is more embracing. Mm-hmm. Of we more, I would say Africans are more collaborative, right? Because they need to be, yes, all right. And so we are always in a realm of translating, or always in a realm of of adjusting, adjusting, making room, trying to make it work. And so to be able to learn the language of others, I think, is very beneficial. And and that's how I I perceive it. I I perceive it as an opportunity to learn a language unfamiliar to me. And it's in the smallest things. It's in, do you have coffee all the time after your meal? Because everyone else right. has coffee. Right. Um, it's, it's about how do we speak? How direct are we? Are we indirect? Do we have pleasantries? Do we not have pleasantries? Right. Do we have different assumptions given different people within the room? How are you perceived as a woman of color amongst mm-hmm. only white men? <laughs> right. So 
in a European US based kind of realm and geography. And that's going to be a lot of my reality, right? For some time. But I also hope in many ways I do break ground for others to feel that they can also be translators. It doesn't matter where our backgrounds are, are from. Um, so in that way, it's, it's, yeah. I don't know if that really answers the questions or if I just went on a like rant of nonsense. No, it definitely, no nonsense was, was shared. <laughs> it definitely answered the question, but we're going to dig in to that a little bit. So I appreciate what you said about institutions, these, these funding institutions being composed of people with opinions, because I'm guilty of this myself. It's like LP, capital, capital. It's this big, massive behemoth institution with no, it's like a, it's, I don't, no one's going to get this reference, but it's like the Borg from, from Star Trek. You will assimilate. There's no personality, you know, all of that. But of course, there are people with specific experiences, cultural backgrounds, assumptions, et cetera, that have to be engaged with. So what I'm curious about is, given that, to your point, investor relations hasn't up till now been a easily identifiable function, how does it work? So if you're an investor relations professional, you're on investor relations team, from the layperson's perspective, you are in charge of marshalling the Whining funds. Whining and dining. <laughs> Whining and dining for the purpose of marshalling the funds. So, so what is that all about? What is the process? How does it go? How do you select LPs, et cetera? It's, it's more strategic. You spend a lot of time ensuring so it, it's actually interesting because investor relations sometimes plays with marcoms marketing and communications mm -hmm. but they also deviate it's about your public relation your perspective it's about looking after your existing lps and ensuring that they are happy but also ensuring that as you build new products those products are what speak to the market or what will allow you to raise funds and it's also about strategically growing alliances with LPs that understand your vision, your mission, and are willing to back you for that. And so obviously the biggest challenge for an investor relations is to ensure that they keep raising more funds and more different funds, even if they have a different strategy or the same strategy. It's about being able to come up with a story that makes sense. Why would you be raising the same fund for the second time or the third time, what's the justification is because you do really well. It's also about how well you're going to argue the case. Mm -hmm. You're competing with so many other people who are also vying for the same money. Uh, and why are you the best asset manager to, to be allocated this money? Why, why you? So an investor relations day and life really looks more like making strategic decisions, ensuring you have the right visibility, also ensuring that you are, you are delivering to your existing LPs. I mean, your investment team should be doing that, but you also report back to them. You're also ensuring you're building the name of the firm brand building in a way, but also being able to manage, it's like sales, it's like effectively it's sales. Mm. So imagine just being a salesperson out looking for new business, but it's a little bit more than that because it really is about relationship because the first, I would say the first most important thing for investor relations person is to listen because hmm. when you hear, you know, if there's a fit or not, or you know what a person's looking for. Right. Sometimes people say, ah, it's mandate, checkbox, X, Y, Z. Yeah, it can be that easy. But sometimes it's, it's listening out for the little bits, i.e. who's the analyst in this team that will most likely run with this deal? Mm -hmm. Who's the person I need to most probably spend more time to understand so that they like us enough to push the deal forward in the team? So... You know, typically people say it's always the seniors. Actually, you should typically look for the juniors. They're the ones that do a lot of the work. Right. And they're the ones who will push that deal forward a lot more for you. They're the ones who scout the market. They're the ones who bring something in. And so it's about, yeah, it's really about sales. It's about also always ensuring that the firm is, well, the firm's product is always still speaking to the market. And in, in that way, it's, it's like a feedback loop. And that's what investor relations kind of does. It, it feeds back this 
this loop. And of course, there are also other things that you do. If you have placement agencies, you manage all of that, those processes. You're managing conversations. You're remembering conversations. You need to remember people. You need to remember where they fit in all of it. So I would say it, it's a, it is a strategic role. And it's really about getting a firm, a uh, private equity firm to the next level. And getting to the next level is determined typically by how many funds you can raise and how big those funds become over time, right? Because the goal is to have assets under management of billions plus, typically. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's what you want. And that will come, yes, with the portfolios that you invest in, but it will also come with how good you are at raising capital. And they go hand in hand. When you have a great PR, great, a great public figure, great public presence, it also with a good track record and a strong one and a good name known uh, and visible, you are able to also raise funds as well. Right. Interesting. So we've talked about the building blocks of the role, if you like. So communications, public relations, investigative research, <laughs> psychology. Yeah. Uh, whining and dining. Whining and dining. <laughs> Whining and dining. So, but let's talk about operations. So, I'm not going to, I, I, I'm not going to clobber you with a day in the life type of scenario, but in a, an appreciable amount of time, I don't know, six months to a year, what types of tasks or activities do you have to undertake to deliver on all of these building blocks? In other words, what do you do? It's <laughs> a good one. It depends. Are we are you in fundraising mode or are you not in fundraising mode? Let's do both. So let's let's take fundraising mode and then off season. Yeah, so fundraising mode is is aggressive. You are preparing it's it's effectively what entrepreneurs also go through, really. Mm -hmm. You are preparing all relevant documents that you need to prepare before you launch a fund. You are preparing all sorts of communications that you need to be doing outwardly and shortlisting who are the people you need to be speaking to, finding who that, that is, finding strategies or ways in which you're going to be communicating with those people or effectively shortlisting the people that you need to work with. You're spending time doing what you call roadshows, preparing for roadshows, mm -hmm. which is going around different countries and places and having conversations with people to talk about your fund. You are, I mean, so there's also a legal and compliance bit, but that's typically done by an operations team, which is a lot of other work, <laughs> which is just actually having a legal entity that's running. You are managing various conversations at different stages in your pipeline. Really, that's the biggest thing is management. So you would think it's like finding a list and then like, oh, okay, cool, speaking to them and then you have a chat. No, it's about making sure a prospect becomes a whole investment right and that's moving it along the chain and so that is following up that is providing detailed information if they require detailed information some people are peculiar they want something else that is also arranging all due diligences that's within the team that's within the portfolio that's going on trips with them that's also it's really about showcasing the, the organization and then it's also post-investment that happens. And so besides all the strategic things you do, the events you attend and all of that, then there's managing the relationship after that, the good and the bad, right? It's also about keeping it comfortable so that they can mm. be re-ups, right? People who will come back with business again. That's the easiest business you can ever have is repeat business, exactly. right? Exactly. But that is going to be based on how the relationship goes. It's also then managing requests that come from them and ensuring that you deliver on those communication channels. So it is about communicating. So that's mostly when you're, let's say, fundraising mode, really. It's just about getting to those levels, getting targets, really. It's project planning. It's mm -hmm. a big, 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 big project. To raise a fund is a massive project because you also have to coordinate with various people on the teams. You have to coordinate with the investment teams. You need to coordinate with partners. You need to get all sorts of information all together that is relevant in order for people to make a decision about the firm and manage the whole process of various people, different people at different points within that process. So th that's what it is. 
off season is more strategic and that's really about thinking about the next race what size mm-hmm. will it be mm-hmm. what mandate will it be is it the same if it's the same why then what's the messaging it's about growing the network is it more geographies that you're looking at so it's it's more in the it's a strategic level in terms of how do we move the firm further than where we are now given the raise that you've done so you take some cooling off time well i wish there was cooling off time you typically <laughs> always wonder is no cool off time it also sometimes might be about creating a fix right maybe you need to create some bridging how do you create a fix that's another new product you're launching to create a fix but how are you telling that story and who do you go out to the market to do so you also look at co-investment opportunities who are the lps who would want to co-invest so you also manage that who would make good partners and what other products could we offer them so i would say that investor relations takes off a big chunk of what founders and partners would also spend time doing in a, its own separate function in a way So I very much appreciate that you pointedly mentioned that LPs are not the Borg, they are not a monolith, there are different types. So if you could break down the different types of LPs and if there are different so in the operational processes that you shared or even expectations are there marked differences in the different types of LPs. And if you don't mind, could you just clarify what you mean by a fix because I was nodding like I think I think I know what this this is but then by the time you finish talk is like I don't know I'm not sure I know what this is so yeah you have different types of lps i will not go through the whole long list but i can put them in maybe two big buckets which is institutionals and the other one would be let's say more private wealth mm-hmm. so high net worth individuals family offices and so of course those behave really different institutions are governed by lots of procedures and processes right some of them move fast some of them don't but within that institutional realm you can have foundations foundations that might be of one family but they also behave like an institution but you can also have a foundation that doesn't behave like an institution and has one family where they make a decision around the table but typically foundations are more institutional you can have developmental agencies that are part of institutions you can have corporate investors endowments and those are more of your institutional types then you can go to your private wealth you can have high net worth individuals so one single person who is super wealthy that can take a decision by themselves quickly you could have a family a multifamily office a single family office there's a multitude of differences of people you would be speaking to and even within that realm you have advisors and some of those are the gatekeepers to the people you want to speak to right and you might never ever speak to those people because the advisors are the ones that make the decisions so <laughs> so so this is part of the complexities of fundraising as well right you always have to know who you're talking to mhm and you need to understand what kind of animal is it how does it behave mhm and so for instance if it's a private wealth person it's a one to one conversation i would say typically those investments are done on feelings more on relationship yeah of course of course you have to have the fundamentals but those are mostly more i'm backing you because i like you or i like what you offer or i like your team and then you have let's say let's take it to the far end a big pension fund and they have a lot of people there are that they are accountable to right including maybe your own tax money there as well so <laughs> right So you want to make sure they're making the damn right decision and they that's completely different because it's one person or well it's a couple of people typically in a deal that have to move a deal with other people who are trying to move a deal as well and that's where i say it is still about the people right you might be working in a big engine and machine but you still have to motivate the persons doing the job right in order for them to move it within the organization and to be a champion for you so you need champions effectively and that is about relationship that really boils down to relating 
to people and making them feel like they're heard. It's not always easy to work for a big institution. There's sometimes people who be like, I really want to do this deal, but like, ah, right. My, my legal team is just nonsense. Exactly. You know? Right. And so you have to have an appreciation for those nuances or crazy things that happen. You asked me about a fix. There are times where, let's say you have, you have raised a fund and you still have portfolios in there that you still would want to do more follow-up capital because it kind of makes sense or maybe you have follow-up capital that you've committed to or maybe you don't have enough, but typically it doesn't happen that way. It's Maybe it's a continuation. Some LPs might still want to have similar exposure to really good companies. Then you could make a fix for a new fund uh, oh, where they okay. can have select portfolio companies where they can also do investments in those companies that continues to give them exposure. It's far more complicated on the legal back inside <laughs> in terms of how those things are structured, but that would be effectively a new product. It's not a flagship fund per se, but it's a product from one of the flagship funds that gives a different offering to your LP. So it's about also being creative in keeping your existing LPs or new LPs with products that they also like. And seeing how that also benefits your portfolio companies while at the same time benefits your LPs. So you're effectively creating a, a new product for them. So that's what I mean by fixes. But fixes is more structuring new products that aren't just mainly your flagship ones. You could also create co-investment vehicles where it's a dedicated pool of funds because you've heard that there's interest amongst people to do co-investments. And then you create a fund in a vehicle where people participate in their different terms around co-investment and who manages and all of that. So there really is a lot of, there's a lot more products that do go into it that should ultimately be benefiting the portfolio company so that they can have access to more capital. But you are structuring new products to ensure you're still relevant or creating interesting things for your LPs. And that's also part of that investor relations role. That makes a lot of sense. So if a fix is in fact a, a fix uh, in the sense that you are creating a product to solve, well, solve a problem, but it is maybe a, capture. It is a fix. It is Portfolio a fix. needing more money. So <laughs> <laughs> fix. But yeah, you're right. Maybe fix is the wrong word. More uh, innovative products. But then I was making it sound more sexy than it is. No, I, I know. I think fix makes sense. So now that you've explained it, I understand why you use the, the terminology. It makes sense. So then let's chat about the LP side of things, right? So and I know it's a bit difficult because, as you rightly pointed out, there are many and they will behave differently. But if you can try to navigate that or summarize, how, how do they go about evaluating? So broadly speaking, what is it that they're looking for and how do they sort out whether you're it? or not? Oh, it's a good one. Cause I'm still not sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm trying to find out, girl. Speak to me in like three years. I'll let you know if I found the code. No, um, I think on the most part, what I'll say is track record mm -hmm. liquidity. There's some, let's take it in a simple way. Let's, let's move LPs. Let's just take you and I, if we put money in an investment, we want to see that that money is growing. I am getting some dividend that I have a track record that I can see that this stuff is making sense. And that's why I want to put more money in it. And I think in the similar way, that's what LPs look for. I think on the first most fundamental level is really track record. The second one, but most probably is the first one, is the team, mm -hmm. the expertise and uh, management team. Really, how strong is that management team and, and how much expertise uh, does it have? And there should be a bit of a correlation between the management team and the performance in a way. I think what's happening more and more is that diversity, equity and inclusion is now becoming a big factor mm -hmm. and ESG. And that's also by nature because of the way the world is moving. So you are finding that that's becoming more of a, a thing. LPs do want to see more diverse teams, but they also want to see diverse decision makers. It's not just about having a diverse team just because you have a diverse team. It's about seeing who are the owners of the fund or the firm itself. 
and is there equity there and inclusion? And I think it's also important, really, in the African space and sense, I think that that should be demanded far more, that we should have significantly more LPs that are doing investments in Africa that look like Africans and represent that. I, I, I really, or at least have an equal footing in it. And I mean in ownership. I don't mean in just ceremonious titles. I do mean in really an equal footing. And that's another realm and another day for different politics of what I think should be happening in the, the investment space, particularly around GPs that are investing in Africa. But yeah, I think that that's also important. I think incentive is also important uh, that they look at. Do investment teams have the right incentive, right? Do they participate in any way that gives them the incentive to find the right deals, to source them, to manage them and to do the right deals, right? So you also look at things such as that. Compliance, that's also now, it's like a hygiene factor, right? Mm -hmm. Are you compliant? And to have a fund, maybe people think it's uh, really relaxed. It's not. As soon as you decide to have a fund and you domicile in a particular place, which is also decisions you need to make, like Mm -hmm. where do you domicile? Where does it make sense? There's a compliance aspect to it. And are you compliant? That's also a big thing. It will also be about who are the other investors in your own fund. Like, are they vetted well, KYC'd and all of that? That's also important things that will be looked at. So I think there's a multitude of things, but I really would say the proof is in the eating mm-hmm. for these LPs. And, and of course, there are other LPs that are more catalytic and that's their mandate is that they invest in first-time fund managers. And that's cool, but... You won't see them in fund three. But on the most part, people do want to see a track record. They want to see a strong team. They want to see expertise. They want to know that the people doing the investments know what they're doing. And in addition, they do want to see other considerations nowadays, which is really around yeah, diversity, inclusion, and equity. But in addition, they do want to see returns. So, I mean, it is the big R that that also does push them. And whether that returns are social or financial, though they should be both, I think that's a big thing. That's a big thing because at the end of the day, it's easier within a bigger institution to advocate to do an additional investment in a company that's already performing. It's an easy, it's an easier win than one that isn't. Right, right. So something really interesting that you pointed out earlier in the conversation was about power dynamics as an investor, obviously. And I've, I've, of course, maybe we all have heard about this from the perspective of, of the founder and how the founder evaluates how they choose investors based on how investors manage the fact that they are winning in the power dynamic game. But in the context of a relationship between GPs and LPs, what are the power dynamics like there and what influences who has power at any given time? Yeah, I think the power dynamics come into play more when the investors are in your fund and you can get deep learnings from that. So if you have an investor that sounded great because there was big money and then they become the biggest admin of your life, you'll most probably say, I don't want to do that again. Mm -hmm. You most probably might not want them again because the time spent just having them is far more onerous than not having them at all. And so, yeah, the power dynamics, I think within that realm, really in that really tenuous power dynamic story that you get between GP and LP, outside of, let's say, when you are fundraising, yeah, because of course, when you're fundraising, all the GPs are trying to lick every LP's finger and toe. But really, I think where the dynamic becomes quite a thing is is when the LP is an actual investor in the GP, because then it comes with requirements, really. So you can get an LP that's just overly demanding, way demanding, or an LP that just really will block anything that you choose to do. Mm-hmm. If you want to change strategy, if you decide this, even though you are making the best decisions for the team, because you kind of are doing the investment, so you kind of know, you can have difficult LPs. And so that that relationship can, can be tenuous. I think it is about a partnership and being able to weigh out how much stress does this money give me and right. is it worth it, 
or not. And that's the same. I mean, I think entrepreneurs still make the same assessment when they're looking more at, must I take this money? Is it money or do I need something more? Like, is it money or do I need mentorship or is it network that's more important and valuable to me than the money or making that assessment? And in a similar way, but not entirely the same, there is the same assessment that is made, which is really, if I take this money, how much more reporting nonsense do I have to deal with? Right. And is it worth it? Or am I going to have a board where there's one big bully? Right. And will that be helpful or not? So those are considerations that you make. But it's always a little bit harder because also with institutions, you can have high turnaround. So one minute you have a fantastic relationship you've built with one person in an institution and everything is rosies and everyone loves you. And then next minute the new person comes in and they're like, anything that is legacy is dirty. And I need to clean the house. And that is typically the worst. And that's actually the other thing I didn't add in the fundraising dynamic is you have to deal with turnover within mm-hmm. big institutions. So imagine having to reset a couple of times new conversations. Mm. Painful. That sounds terrible. It's painful. Girls, so. Mm. 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 That's exactly why people should also have an appreciation for the investor relations function. It's got its challenges, but so does everything, right? But uh, these are some of the challenges that, that you can face. Indeed, indeed. And so I'm assuming that part of what happens when you're building the relationship is seeking alignment and negotiating difference, So, which could be incorrect. So please correct me if that's incorrect. But if that is the case, in your view, what things do you absolutely need alignment on and what things can you kind of negotiate over time? Good one. Hmm. I think alignment in in strategy. Yeah. I think definitely in where is the firm going, management. I think that sort of alignment is kind of important the bigger picture of the firm, like understanding where the firm is positioned in the context of the industry, in the context of everything. That's important. The other one with <laughs> the non-negotiable ones or the ones you can try and negotiate later. Oh, no, I would also add, I think, economics as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm, yeah. Economics is huge. Sorry, I forgot about that. This is strategy and economics. <laughs> economics, I think, is, <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a big one you want to negotiate on. And sometimes you don't necessarily have the upper hand, especially when it comes to management fees. It's another hot topic. And so being able to make sure that the economics makes sense, I think. So strategy and economics are really big ones in terms of alignment. So before you move on, when you say economics, what does that mean for people who might not know? So you're talking about, you're talking about like, what are the management fees, yeah. hurdle rates, carry, carried interest? Yeah, you're effectively just talking about the economics that make it work for the GP, for it to make sense for them to be taking on uh, that kind of money. Of course, the big thing is that uh, LPs want to make sure that they're not paying too high a price. Well, higher price in terms of fees, management fees for the capital they're committing. So, yeah, I think the differences. And even in that structuring that I was talking about, little fixes, right? Depending, you could do little sweeteners. Is there like a little right. discount on the management fees or not? Or people who come in the first close, do they get a, a little bonus discount because they came in the first close for right. the management fees? Or do you do management fees with a waiting as time passes? So there's various different ways of dealing with the economics. And that's also another big part of it. Right. And then what about the negotiables, things that you can sort out over time? I think, yeah, maybe the people who who's sitting on the board seat, how much involved, reporting requirements. Mm-hmm. I think that's also another one. You can negotiate those a bit more. I think those are the two I can really stretch out of my head right now because I'm just like, yeah, the economics are the most important, right? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, on the most part, things are quite standard in GPLP relationships, there is an established standard that's there as to what you should typically be expecting in the terms and in your legals and all of that. Whereas in, with 
an entrepreneur and a GP relationship, there's a lot of negotiating mm-hmm. given the stages of the business, right? Even if you're talking about key people, right? And that's also something you would also discuss. I think it's negotiable as well with LPs and GPs as who are key people and at what level, which is similar, I guess, with entrepreneurs and GPs, but I think there's far more that's negotiable with GPs and entrepreneurs. Right. So we've done a pretty thorough, I think, deep dive into the contours of investor relations. So maybe last shot. Last shot. Last shot. Oh, I I, I failed. (laughs) I said I was avoiding war and I failed. Last comment. What do you think is easy to get wrong in this process? So if you were trying to coach someone who's getting in and say, okay, please, please don't do this and please bear these things in mind, what would you say? Because I've had experience with this. So I'm going to draw on a personal experience. The easiest thing to get wrong in IR is how easy it can be. My former colleague, well, who's now at another firm, but was a very amazing lady, gave me a quote, which uh, I think still holds true now, by Theodore Roosevelt, which was, it is not the critic, you know, he he has this whole write-up that he did. And of course, I can't like tell you all of it, but Google it. But if you just say Theodore Roosevelt, it's not the critic. Effectively, he says, it is always easier for the people who aren't in the battlefield right. to criticize what your effort has been, right? It's, it's easier to throw dust and to make faces and to talk about targets and to talk about delivering on things and to raise money. But you have to be in the battlefield really to have a true appreciation for it. And I think it's similar to entrepreneurs. You have to have been through the dust of fundraising to understand what goes into it for you to achieve it. And that's also the the beautiful tension that's there with the investment side and the investor relations, because the investment side will always come with a pipeline that's always hot. And they'll ask you, and where's the money? And so I think the most important bit is that it's not easy. It becomes easier with time Mm -hmm. as you grow the fund, prominence, all of that, network and all of that. But it isn't easy. And not to say that investing is easy as well. So please don't get me wrong. There are also some challenges there. But it is far harder to convince someone to trust you with money because it is really something that you hold precious. Mm -hmm. The same way an entrepreneur will say it is far harder to give equity to someone for your own business. And that is maybe a similarity in the feeling of the dynamic. And the other thing I think that's most important is your ability to listen and to listen with empathy. And I I know I've referred to it, so I'll explain a little bit as I close off. To listen with empathy means to be able to meet the person where they are Hmm. outside of the veil of whatever institution they're part of, outside of the veil of whether they come from a wealthy family or not, outside of the veil of their own successes and yourself, and to be able to understand what it is they actually want and need. And that is the investor relations function, is creating the right product that meets the need of a person. And you can only do that when you've given yourself a good big ear to listen, while at the same time, enough good spirit to fail. And that's what I would say it really takes and my learning so far. But we'll see what else. So I don't think I would have assumed I'd say this about investor relations, but that was really beautifully stated. So thank you for the way that you express that. So tonight, as we wrap up here, I've got my little Trajectory Africa signature questions. So I'm going to pose them to you. And so part of what I'm trying to do here is map the trajectory of African tech in DC and partnership with folks who are kind enough to come on to the podcast and talk to me. 
So from your perspective, both as an investor and an investor relations professional, what do you see as a trajectory and how do you, we know we're arriving? I mean, you kind of leaned into this at the beginning of the conversation, but if you'd like to wrap up or add anything, you are welcome. So I think our trajectory is that we will no longer be seen as this exotic foreign far place where things are just happening and you hear interesting happenings but that we will actually shape the global conversation towards our future and so that's really where i see the trajectory is that we are going to have more prominent and important voices in places where we didn't expect us to have them and influence so we will have many translators in the years to come. Brilliant. And and so this is interesting because it dovetails into your personal trajectory. So could you maybe say a word or two about that comment you made about African tech and VC colliding with others and how this relates to the journey that you're on? Yeah, so and, and at HPE, they already know. I would love in the years to come to be able to be one of the first real big growth capital going into Africa for tech um, and uh, being able to to select them once they're coming out of that early stage story of them and uh, being able to link them to portfolios that are also global because HPE does have a North America and European focus and experience, even if you look at the partners, they have some very crazy experience um, globally. To be able to tap into that and, and give a platform to those businesses and to really participate in a way where being a billion dollar company really becomes a lot easier. We'll have more unicorns. And it's quite interesting because that's what I am seeing here. It's like, I think there should be a new category for unicorns in a European market. But really where we don't have as much, uh, what can I say, awe and wonder as to the unicorns we have, it, it becomes just the natural trajectory of what private equity is in, in Africa and becomes the natural trajectory for businesses to really have a pathway to that growth. So in the era of normalizing everything, ideally we're normalizing achieving a unicorn status and everything that it provides in African tech and VC. Wonderful. So last question. The other thing I'm doing is crowdsourcing or attempting to crowdsource the soundtrack to African tech and VC. So please, Denai, if you could share your song suggestion and, and explain why you picked it. Oh, song suggestion. <laughs> Uh, Samo Yomuntu. I don't know if you know that song. I don't. Yeah, I'm a piano song from South Africa. But for some reason, why do I like it? Because I think the lyrics talk about like A-listers and like you like to hang out with A-listers <laughs> and summer for... And maybe, maybe I feel that way that like uh, maybe I'm hanging out with some A-listers that I don't know about yet. So... <laughs> But that's kind of what it's about, though, isn't it? That's what trajectory is. Yeah. You're becoming A-listers together. And so you look yeah, back exactly. and you're like, <laughs> you're in the, you know, in the corner with the gated area. I said, oh, okay, yeah. These are, these so are all my people. So I've got to, like, emulate the vibe of that song. And now that you've mentioned it, I will go off and listen to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Zanai, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Learn so much. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for joining and us. Thank you for having me and to everybody who listens in. All love and feel free to reach out. Wonderful. Thank you to all of you who are listening. I hope you'll be back for the next track. Thank you very much. 